Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 163 of the Podium and Panel podcast. And this is going to be a bit of a unique episode. First, because Dan is uh, Ken traveling. He has been uh, on the road quite a bit recently. And then also because the second segment is an interview that I did with uh, Brad Smith regarding uh, sections 12.05 and 12.05, sorry, 1205.1. 1205 and 1205.1 that we discussed in reference to the Rossi case. So that'll be the second segment. In our first segment, we're going to discuss two cases. Uh, the first is Cornejo versus Alliance Shippers, and the second is Lavery versus Department of Financial and Professional Regulation. Um, so for our first, uh, first case, uh, the Cornejo case, did the circuit court err by denying the defendant's JNOV, mo- JNOV motion on the issue of agency between Alliance shippers where the plaintiff asserted the business relationship between Alliance and Dakota, Dakota Lines was alone sufficient to establish control over Dakota Lines employees, Gordon Lewis? Was it error to not include Lewis in the jury instruction on agency? Was it error to use a non-IPI on agency, borrowing language from Spurl versus C.H. Robinson Worldwide, 408 Illap 3rd, 1051 from the 3rd District in 2011. Was it prejudicial for the plaintiff to repeatedly mention insurance and indemnity obligations in the agreement between Alliance and Dakota? Those are among the questions to be answered when the Illinois Appellate Court 1st District decides Cornejo versus Alliance shippers. Alliance is a shipper that contracted with Dakota to provide services. Lewis was a Dakota employee that the plaintiff claimed was in the scope of his employment for Dakota and doing work for Alliance at the time that the accident, of an accident that injured the plaintiff. The defendant contended that there was no control by Alliance over Lewis and thus there could be no agency relationship making it liable for his negligence. The jury entered a judgment against Alliance. The circuit court denied Alliance's post-trial motion and Alliance appealed. So this is a case that uh, the oral argument became very, uh, in, in very, very unusual fashion. Justice Lampkin, who was presiding, opened both the argument of the appellant as well as argument with appellee by asking questions. Before they really even got their names out, she had a series of questions that she wanted answered that got to the heart of these issues regarding agency. And then there was substantial follow-up from Justice Hoffman in particular, I believe it was, on not because he wasn't really getting the answer to the question that he was looking for. And that was the issue of this relationship between Alliance and Lewis. So the, the, the way the court seemed to be looking at it, Alliance uh, contracted with Dakota. And because Alliance contracted with Dakota to provide these shipping services, then it was responsible for what Lewis did because Lewis was Dakota's agent. And therefore it was also Alliance's agent. That was the, theory. And that was the theory that the plaintiff was able to present. 
what the, what Alliance was arguing was is well, we didn't really have control over Lewis such for him to be our agent, even though there was this contract with Dakota, because at the time of the accident, Lewis was carrying what was described as an empty box to move a trailer that was empty from one from one uh, facility to another in order to get ready for the next day. Um, that was the that was the reason for his trip. The argument by plaintiff was, well, that was done in order to service the business of Alliance, which doesn't actually have any. Uh, it's a shipping company, as he discussed, counsel for plaintiff described. It's a shipping company that doesn't actually able to, able to ship anything. They have to contract with others, including entities like Dakota Lines, in order to do all their shipping because they can't actually do it themselves. They have to get another company to do it for them. And in this case, they had arranged for Dakota. So Lewis had done a, at least one, uh, had done a series of deliveries between Indiana, Michigan, and Illinois, I believe, on the day of the incident, and then was moving a a, uh, a trailer owned by J.B. Hunt for the next day that was empty. Um, J.B. Hunt, at one point, was a defendant. It settled uh, for, I think, uh, on the judgment order, showed for $9,000. So this $18 million judgment was written down by $9,000 uh, based upon the settlement because all J.B. Hunt had was, a, was an empty trailer. It wasn't really involved in the alleged negligence. Uh, but the issue is, is how do you account for or how do you determine if Alliance Shippers was the uh, principal of Lewis such that it was responsible for his allegedly negligent conduct? Um, it's a it's an interesting issue um, uh, that uh, it's an interesting issue. We'll have to see how the court works it out. If it's just the business relationship, the defendant argued that's not enough. It's got to be something more where they actually controlled Lewis, and it was the defendant's contention that they didn't do anything like in Spurl, where they were. Uh, you know, the argument was as well in Spurl they were in, the the principal was directly in communication with the driver, telling him what to do and so forth, and then none of that happened in this case. Another thing that's interesting, and it, you know, I didn't really point it out, but it's an interesting fact, is that the plaintiff was able to amend their complaint, file an eighth amended complaint uh, during the post-trial period, and that's proper, typically, under Illinois law, um, at any time prior to judgment. So even after the verdict had been rendered, they, they had amended their complaint um, they didn't get that didn't get into they didn't get into really the reason for that at oral argument it didn't seem to be one of the bases for appeal it might have been but it wasn't the focus of the argument what was the focus of the argument at least from I believe it was Justice Hoffman again was this issue of insurance that was brought up um, you know it, I, I think on four or five occasions opening closing and with several witnesses um, more than two, or see, more than one witness. It seemed at least two, and perhaps even three witnesses. This issue of insurance was brought up. And typically, that can be seen as prejudicial, um, and that's why I think there may be a reversal here because of the the, the insurance uh, by itself doesn't show control, but it can be used to suggest control, and that it, it is prejudicial. But it's being used for an improper purpose. Um, what we'll see. Uh, how that uh, how that turns out, um, but that's part of the reason why we get to predictions. I think that there may be a reversal here because Justice Hoffman seemed to be very troubled by that uh, uh, gratuitous use or gratuitous reference to um, uh, 
to insurance. We'll see what happens. But this is a very, very interesting case that deals with these agency issues. If you recall, the McQueen case that came out last year that also dealt with agency issues in the context of trucking. And this was a case where the Supreme Court of uh, Illinois held that a uh, defendant could be uh, liable, a defendant shipper could be liable for punitive damages, even though the, uh, the driver was not liable. So this is another um, another spin on that, uh, that similar issue, uh, really putting it to uh, trucking companies and shippers um, in terms of how they uh, arrange their business and who they're actually responsible for. This would expand it. This would seem to expand it further um, if this if this decision stands. So a, a very interesting case and one that uh, we'll keep an eye on when it comes out. Uh, the next decision, our next case we're going to talk about is Lavery versus Department of Financial Professional Regulation. Uh, can a party recover attorney's fees from the state of Illinois as a sanction in circuit court for violation of the Mental Health and Developmental Disabilities Confidentiality Act, or must those fees be recovered in, court of cl- in the Court of Claims? That is the question to be answered when the Illinois Appellate Court First District decides Lavery versus Department of Financial and Professional Regulation. The department brought an, an inquiry and sought notes uh, from Lavery. Lavery objected because the department did not seek an in-camera inspection of the records before requesting them. Filed it, he filed its own at his own action in the circuit court for that review. The circuit court found the records protected and awarded fees under the statute. So the question is whether you can go after uh, whether so- essentially a sovereign immunity applies, or whether the statute waives sovereign immunity when it allows for uh, fees to be awarded when records are improperly sought. Um, that's, the, that's the real crux of the issue. The courts seem to be really skeptical um, that the department could, could act as it did and then get away, from, uh, for, get away with not uh, uh, having fees levied. There also was this issue of whether they needed to name a particular officer of the state of the IDFPR um, in, in their lawsuit, or was it sufficient just to name the IDFPR uh, itself? Um, they did name, looking at the caption, they did name uh, an officer, it seems, but the judgment was against uh, against the department and not the officer. So it's unclear whether this uh, officer requirement, as argued by the state, was met or, or if it even had to be. Um, it's... We've talked about the, the Confidentiality Act several times on the on the show. It's a it's an important statute because, as you recall, protection for mental health records um, only are come from state law, not federal law, and sovereign immunity obviously is a creature of of, of state law. Um, and whether the state is going to waive it is certainly a creature of state law. And so whether. And what the right, right procedure is. We've seen other cases where uh, the failure to ask for an in-camera inspection is fatal to a request. Um, now, whether it can also lead to fees is, is the question here, and whether it can lead to fees against the state is another layer of, of that issue. Um, but so this, has, this case stands for a number, or will deal with a number of issues, not only related to um, claims against the state, but also how it how things work with regards to the um, the mental health uh, mental health and developmental disabilities confidentiality act and
and what and when and where you can bring actions against the state. We've had other cases, you know, where the we had the the Green case where the Illinois State Police were sued um, for um, what was alleged to be a murder by uh, by two troopers, um, and whether that claim had to be brought in the court of claims or whether it could be brought in circuit court. It's a slightly different issue, um, but it's the, the theory is the same of where you can seek money damages against the state is it only in the court of claims. And then even there, it seemed to be there was an argument that they may not be able to seek it there either. So the state trying uh, its best uh, to to protect itself. That's, a, that's we'll see how that goes. The court didn't seem to be to be going for it, um, but, uh, but we'll, we'll see there. So with that, that brings us to our, there, there were no developments on, on business interruption with regards to COVID. Um, but we did have two predict two cases come out this week. Dan is 243.55 and 17. I am 240.58 and 17. The first case that came out that we got right, we were 2-0 this week, by the way, was uh, Chicago Recycling Coalition versus City of Chicago Department of Street and Sanitation. This was uh, a case we discussed on episode 158. It deals with FOIA. And this is the case where the city had uh, 115 or so contracts with various recycling haulers, and it didn't enforce its requirement to get certain reports that were requested. And the question presented was whether the state or the city had to ask the um, these haulers to provide them that information, or was it sufficient to uh, simply produce what they had, which was only about a third of the of the total um, report or the total. Um, uh, request or total reports um, that were available uh, or that they, not that were available that they had. And so the question was, did they have to go further? And the question is, did they have to go ask them or did they, are they, did, they certainly weren't required. And the plaintiff wasn't arguing that they had to um, enforce their ordinance and go after these, um, uh, go after these haulers in any particular way. Um, but the court um found that they did not have to make that inquiry, that what they did was, was enough. Um, it's interesting that there was a special concurrence by Justice Walker and Justice Johnson um, that essentially said, come on, city, why don't you go do this? You should go do this. You're not, you know, th- this is something of great import, and you should go get the, uh, the documents that are required. That Justice Taylor, who wrote the opinion for the court, did not join in that concurrence. Uh, so it, I, I'm not sure. It's, does a two-person concurrence make a uh, make a majority opinion? It, it didn't. It, the court didn't seem to think so. Justice Taylor didn't join in it, but it sure seems like that's a majority of the court concurring in something that uh, um, is not adverse to the judgment. Certainly, is a criticism of the city, which frankly was the point I think from a public interest perspective by the Chicago Recycling Coalition to get the city to get these records. Um, that seems to be what their what their goal was in the first place, and as I and so mission accomplished. The other case that came down this week was Wiedemeyer versus Bennett, uh, and uh, this was one we discussed in episode 159. In this case, um, this is the case where the court uh, was faced with whether there was an, an agreement to settle. Um, uh, they had Geico had met the demand, but um, had added itself to the release, and the question was is whether there was still a release. The court didn't reach that question because it found that there wasn't a proper defendant named in the case. The plaintiff had named the estate of the deceased 
but hadn't named properly her husband, who was the special administrator of the estate in the in the lawsuit. Um, and therefore, the court held that there was no um, held that there was uh, no defendant, and therefore dismissed the case, uh, finding that the there was there wasn't a defendant. The time had run to to amend the complaint, and therefore it was it was no good. Um, it's an interesting decision in terms of making sure you name the right party. The plaintiff, as we, we talked about, I think at the time, uh, tried to get over by playing games with the uh, uh, get over by playing games with the uh, with Geico and trying to get uh, an excess judgment. And now they uh, now they end up with nothing. It seems um, because they didn't take the check. There is no party to sue. Um, there is no case. Uh, the case is over. So it's, uh, um, it's it's a harsh result, but it seems that they didn't properly name the defendant and they didn't do it uh, and then they didn't uh, seek to amend in time. So with that, we'll do our prediction sure to go wrong uh, for this week. And um, a- as I said earlier, I, I think that the um, decision in the Cornejo case will be reversed on this insurance issue. I, I, I don't know about the agency issue. But I think the insurance issue is going to lead to a reversal and a new trial. I, I'm going a bit out on a limb there, but it, the court really seemed to harp on that and seemed to be troubled by that issue. Um, and then on um, Lavery versus IDFPR, I think that'll be affirmed. I don't think the court's going to let the department to act the way that it did and, and get away with it. Uh, which brings us to our rule of the week. Um, on Friday, uh, the governor... Governor Pritzker signed HB 219, which is a um, which allows for punitive damages in wrongful death action cases, wrongful death act cases in Illinois. Um, this uh, is obviously an important change in Illinois law and will um, have a have a broad impact. But uh, what's important? Well, I want to juxtapose that with something else that happened on Friday in Springfield, and that was the Calkins versus Pritzker decision where the court upheld the Protect Illinois Communities Act, which dealt with uh, firearm restrictions and specifically what for shorthand is a uh, assault weapons ban uh, of interest to me is less the substance, but more the procedure with regards to the uh, three readings rule. And I'll tie that back in with HB 219 in a moment. But the court held that the plaintiffs failed to cross appeal on the three readings rule issue, the court, they had won a portion of the case, and so they didn't appeal in the first instance, the, the state did, but then they, the court held, the circuit court held that it was bound by the enrolled bill doctrine, and it did not, uh, and therefore it couldn't apply to invalidate the entirety of the statute, and um, that seems the circuit court got that right in terms of they're bound by the enrolled bill doctrine, even though they may not like it and, and express they didn't like it. Um, the 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 majority of the Supreme Court found that that was a jurisdictional bar to um, a jurisdictional bar to uh, challenging on the three readings rule, and so it didn't reach the substance. The dissent, or one of the dissents, there were two dissents. One of the dissents, written by Justice Holder White and joined by Justice Overstreet, said we can we can affirm on any grounds in the record. Um, and this is in the record, so we can do it. The, the majority recognized that rule, but then sidestepped it by saying that they were jurisdictionally barred by not doing the cross appeal. And then Justice Holder White walks through 
um, in pretty good detail the abuses by the General Assembly with not following the three readings rule and cites a number of cases from outside the jurisdiction where other states have had similar problems. Um, and so this will be the subject of my uh, column in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin this coming week. Um, it's, it's an important issue, uh, just good governance or bad governance, of the General Assembly refusing to follow its, its, uh, its oath. And so let's tie that back in with HB 219. Um, of course, HB 219 wasn't, or HB 219 was passed in violation of three readings. Uh, that bill uh, started out as a, uh, an amendment, a shell bill amendment to the, Deposi the Depositions Act, uh, the, uh, and it got amended um, while in the House, but after it had been read a couple times um, before it before it got sent to the Senate. So it's it's got the same problem, and I expect it'll be challenged, um, just as the challenges to prejudgment interest will have this issue. Um, they won't have the jurisdictional issues because they've lost on both of those uh, entirely on the theory, on the legal theory, on the merits of the case. So the, those issues will be raised. And um, so the court is eventually going to, the Supreme Court's eventually going to get to deal with it, whether it's a prejudgment interest case or, or a wrongful death case or other cases that are headed to them because the General Assembly almost never passes a law of any significance that is not in violation of the Three readings rule. They do it sometimes, but it's it's the exception as opposed to the rule. Uh, and and so we have um, uh, we'll we'll see what 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 happens <clears throat> what happens there. Uh, so with that, uh, I'm going to take a break. Come back with uh, my conversation with Brad Smith on twelve oh five point one and twelve oh five, and we'll see you next week on the Podium and Panel Podcast. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Uh, today, uh, we're joined by uh, Brad Smith of Keith Campbell Bogley and Associates. And today we're going to talk uh, with Brad about a statute that came up in the opinion in First Midwest Bank versus Rossi that we discussed most recently on episode 159. And when we discussed the case uh, in the discussed the oral argument in the case, um, what happened? Uh, there were issues that we were very concerned with, namely the prejudgment interest statute, as well as uh, the evidentiary issues that arose. But what the case got remanded on was uh, was the application by the trial court, uh, or misapplication by the trial court, of 735 ILCS 5-2-1205. And this is a statute, I have to confess, I, have, I am not familiar with, uh, and had not been familiar with, but have been now because it came up in this in the in the uh, opinion and wanted to uh, um, wanted to uh, bring it to everyone's attention. Uh, there's a companion statute, twelve oh five point one, 
that um, that deals with personal injury cases outside of the med mal context, but 1205 deals specifically with the med mal context. Uh, Brad, thank you for joining us. And without further ado, why don't you give us a general overview of the statute? Yeah, so this is a, you know, thank you, Pat. This is a post-trial type of statute that's that's designated within the Code of Civil Procedure in Illinois. And essentially you have 1205, which is, as you had said, relates to medical malpractice cases. And then we've got 1205.1, which relates to other types of tort, bodily injury, or death type of claims. So the differences in the statute uh, relate to the type of claim as presented, but really it's all about post-judgment reduction in the amount of recovery. And when you look at the statute, I, I know all defense counsel out there get excited at first because you see the statute, you see, you think collateral source, all right, we're finally going to get some fairness here. Uh, post-judgment, right, um, with collateral source issues, because as everyone knows in Illinois, not able to present those to the jury uh, before uh, judgment's entered. So we're thinking, you know, you read this thing and you're like, oh, wow. I know the first time I looked at it, I thought, wow, this is a godsend. I can actually get some reduction post-trial, uh, you know, related to medical benefits that may have been written off. But that's not the case with this statute, at least as the case law is interpreting it. And, and it's a difficult statute in that regard, because what we're looking at is generally what the statute, my understanding of the statute and the case law is that what it allows for is you can get a reduction depending on certain factors of medical benefits, but they're only, there's only a reduction when it relates to a actual health insurance being obligated to pay those benefits and whether or not they still have a, uh, an option to subrogate or recoup those benefits. So really what you're looking at succinctly with both 1205 and 1205.1, when you're trying to do that reduction outside the scope of lost wages, which 1205 identifies, but when you're looking at both together, what they're really reducing as far as medical benefits is only related to a health insurance or other entities obligation to pay those medical benefits and whether or not there's a difference in that amount versus the amount that that particular health insurance ca carrier might be able to subrogate or recoup. So it's a statute that, that at first glance um, in Illinois, it makes the defense practitioner seem like we're getting a fair shake uh, and, and we can get some um, collateral source help post-judgment related to medical bills, but it doesn't really do that in effect based on the case law interpretations and what the language of the two statute sections are. Um, give 30 days uh, to reduce or, or to bring that motion post-trial, just like any other post-trial motion, but 30 days you have to make the application. And um, there's other uh particular designations within the statute as to the amount that you'll be able to apply for. Um, but that's generally the idea of this uh, 1205 and 1205.1. Um, I would say with, with these two particular sections, it, it, it really makes it difficult on defense counsel, quite honestly, because I, I know there was uh, some um, monthly lunchtime seminars with Judge Egan uh, back in the day, and she presented this topic at one of those seminars. I know a lot of defense counsel looked it over and said, "Wow, this is this is this is helpful." But 
when you really look at it in practice, it, it, it can become a trap because essentially you have to do some pretty succinct discovery uh, pre-judgment or pre-trial to health insurers or other uh, obligors to pay medical benefits so that you can have some discovery and some information on what they are obligated to pay, what they paid, if they have any agreements with the plaintiff's counsel to reduce that to some degree. Um, and then post-judgment, sometimes the plaintiff's counsel doesn't know exactly what they're going to get at trial as, as that judgment might be as far as the medical benefits that would be awarded. So there may not be an agreement in place to reduce those amounts. Uh, well, take Medicare, for example. If yeah. you don't you don't know that for I mean, they're much faster than they used to be, but they're not getting it done in 30 days from the date of judgment. Certainly, if, if it's Medicare, for example, uh, it, yeah, you know, Medicaid used to be that fast in Illinois, but not anymore. Um, so I, I take your point. Can what let's can we change focus just for a second? And in uh, well, what are the mechanics of this? How does it work? And we'll come back to the Rossi case, which is where I was going to go. But how, what are the mechanics of this bit of this statute as you understand it and as you've used it? So essentially what you would do is you would include this within any post-trial motion that you'd be filing, similar to the other uh, post-trial motion practice, you know, for a new trial or whatever particular evidentiary issues may have come up during the trial or errors that you believe had come up, you would present it with that motion, generally speaking. If you can get it on file at the same time, I think, right? So this is, this is in your 12, your 1202 motion. Now, 1202, you can seek an extension uh, as, as provided for in the statute. Is there a provision in this in 1205 or 1205.1 that allows an extension? I, I don't see that, but the way I don't I see it either. I, the way I've used it in practice, quite frankly, is I will um, <clears throat> attempt to barter a little bit or horse trade with the plaintiff's attorney related to the 30 days. Um, and the reason I do that and, and, and an agreed upon extension of that uh, or a stipulation, so to speak, is that if they're looking sometimes for medical specials agreements prior to trial, as we see a lot, you know, uh, outside the scope of a request to admit or something to that effect, if they need something, then I'm usually, and, and I know that this is the type of case that uh, I would benefit from, say it's a high specials case, with uh, health insurance involvement and, and obligations on payments, then I know I kind of have that that case, that, or it, like you said, Medicare or something else. But usually, I'm looking at health insurers for this type of issue. Um, but if if I have that type of case, then and I can secure a, a pre-trial stipulation from the other side in exchange for something that they want, then I'll try to extend that through that means by asking for an agreement or a stipulation that when we file the motion for an extension of time to gather that information, that they'll agree to that or other sort of parameters that allow for that time and disclosure of the information you need to actually meet your burden of proof when you present this motion, because the defendant's going to have the burden of proof here uh, as far as the, uh, the, the reductions, the recoupment, the subrogation interest remaining, you know, the amounts paid by the health insurer, the amounts that may have been agreed to forgiven, or that they've, you know, said that they're not going to seek out. Um, so, so really, that's kind of how I try to get around that. I don't know in practice. It, I've never had it bite me yet, but um, that's 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 what I see, and I use it under that twelve oh five arrangement. 
or not so 12.05. Let's, so let's walk through the statute. I think that'll be helpful to kind of orient people as to where we're at. Um, and the if you look up the statute, 1205.1 was amended during the, uh, the, the mid-90s, and that was obviously repealed. Um, and so make sure you're looking at the unamended version when you look it up. Of course, it's at the bottom of the page, not the top of the page. We're going to talk about 1205 because that's the one that came up in Rossi. And it says, reduction in amount of recovery, an amount equal to the sum of little i, 50% of the benefits provided for lost wages or private or governmental disability income programs, which have been paid or which may be, which have become payable to the insur- injured person by any other person, corporation, insurance company, or fund in relation to an injury and little I two, a hundred percent of the benefits provided for medical charges, hospital charges, or nursing or caretaking charges, which have been paid or which have become payable to the injured person by any other person, corporation, insurance company, or fund in relation to a particular injury shall be deducted. This is the key part shall be deducted from the judgment in an action to recover for that injury based on an allegation of negligence or wrongful act, not including intentional torts on the part of a licensed hospital or physician. So this is limited to uh, healing arts malpractice, and it reduces the the amount, it, it reduces 50% of the benefits lost or 100% of the benefits provided for medical charges. Okay, that's great. And then we come to the key words, provided however that. So <laughs> before we get to the provided however, which basically guts the statute, um, at least how I read it, uh, Brad, what are the high, what are the, we've mentioned the, uh, the amounts or, or the information you need to get, uh, what, what are we talking about here in this first part of the statute? So really what we're looking at there is, um, in, you know, you're looking at insurance contracts for health insurance providers or other contracts that obligate, you know, their payment perhaps mm-hmm. of medical, medical, uh, bills for the injured party. Um, you're looking at uh, any sort of EB or explanation of benefits, EOBs, uh, to explain what they're paying as a reduced cost of those medical bills. Because as we know, in a, uh, you know, uh, insurers have their contracted rates uh, with particular providers that maybe are in network or otherwise that they negotiate. So those rates, say you got a hundred thousand dollar medical bill. This is not exact example, but you and you and I know this. If there's if there's an in uh, in network provider that is seeing, maybe that medical bill, the insurance is only obligated to pay fifteen thousand of that medical bill. That now that's not accurate, but I'm just saying if they have a contracted rate for that particular service that was provided by the medical provider, that that the medical provider billed to the patient at a hundred thousand dollars, then uh, the actual medical provider would only receive, if it was the negotiated rate, the $15,000 payment from the health insurance provider. So you would want to know, uh, as the defendant's attorney in that case, you would want to know as the defendant whether or not uh, and what amounts the health insurer or other obligor paid those uh, medical benefits at. Okay. Um, so that's what you need to know. All right. So then we give them to the, now we have the provided, the, provided however. That one application is made within 30 days to reduce the judgment. Okay, that's we talked about that. That's pretty straightforward. Two, such reduction shall not apply to the extent there is a right of recruitment through subrogation, trust agreement, lien, or otherwise. So, what this seems to mean is, is that 
it's to the extent that there are amounts that the that the plaintiff is going to have to pay back to them, those amounts don't get reduced. Have I got that right? Yeah, that's absolutely okay. correct. Right. Yep. So that so Medicare wants their so if Medicare paid, let's say Medicare paid for paid ten thousand dollars, but they want to get five thousand back, you can only reduce it by five thousand dollars. Have I got it right? Yes, that's correct. All right, yep. good. Okay. The reduction shall not reduce the judgment by more than fifty percent of the total amount of the judgment entered on verdict. Okay, that's that makes sense. Right. The damages awarded shall be increased by the amount of any premium insurance premiums or the direct costs paid by the plaintiffs for such benefits in the two years prior to the plaintiff's injury or death or to be paid by the plaintiff in the future for such benefits. Again, that's I don't know how the defendant's supposed to get that information. <laughs> well, and, and, and in consideration of that, I don't consider that. And, and I don't think many judges would either. I don't consider that part of the burden of proof of the defendant. I think okay. the defendant sets out the other information to the judge uh, in their post-trial motion for remitter. And then it's up to the plaintiff to indicate, well, hold up a second here. I, you know, I paid some of these health insurance benefits to my employer. Maybe I paid, you know, 50% of those health insurance premiums. And so here's that information, Judge, and you, should, you shouldn't reduce down by these amounts that I had to put out to have this insurance in place. Okay. And then we have the portion with regards to medical malpractice that seemed to swallow the whole rule. Number five. There shall be no reduction for charges paid for medical expenses, which were directly attributable to the adjudged negligent acts or omissions of the defendants found li- the defendants found liable. Right. What? Yeah. What, this... what, what? What? Now? So let's take the Rossi case. Let's transition to the Rossi case. They asked for a reduction. They apparently got a reduction. We'll talk about what got reversed in a second. But the allegation was is that because they failed to provide treatment to this woman, she got and went into a coma and died. Everything afterwards, isn't it subsumed by five? I mean, what medical negligence case involves medical bills you're seeking that aren't related to the medical negligence? Or yeah. aren't those? I mean, I don't do I don't do med mal, but this seems to me to be like that seems to be everything. Yeah, and I mean, usually I'm dancing in the twelve oh five point one realm as well, right? Uh, but tw- which doesn't 12- have that provision for obvious reasons. Yeah, correct. But twelve oh five, I see that, and again, I'm not. If we're going strictly with the language here, it, you know, we can have different interpretations, right? But I think that what that really is meant to prevent is, let's say that there's a surgery that causes the entire uh, medical malpractice issue, and that surgery was $100,000. And let's say that you want to, insurance paid 50000 of that particular surgery. I think that the, the, the policy behind Section 5, or at least what probably was the the issue that they wanted to present there was that you're not going to be able to benefit from that particular payment of benefits that would have related to the actual negligent acts of the doctor or or other you know um, individual that would would have been negligent in those circumstances I, I don't know that it flows downhill from that um, I, I see defendants making these these arguments in medical malpractice cases for these reductions. So I, I, there's got to be some bite to the statute outside the fact of this yep. Section 5. And I think that's what the issue is there. Um, so that brings us to what happened in Rossi. So in Rossi, as I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, because my understanding may, you know, I, I didn't, not very familiar with this statute. In Rossi, the, the trial court reduced the amounts for amounts that were written off by the hospitals. 
um, and then and use that as part of the basis for reduction of the award. Have I got that right? Yeah, yeah, that's what that's what and, happened. And the appellate court held that the writing off was using the write off amounts was improper. Um, you couldn't use the write off amounts to show the amount, the total amount that had been paid. I, I, I think I've got that right. My head wants to explode, but I, yeah. I, it, that, that's what I think happened. And that, that got reversed. So it's going to go back down. And after a remitter, there's going to be what amounts to an editor. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's absolutely correct. Yep. Um, so, I mean, essentially it's, it's kind of, they almost tried here what, what, first inclination was when I looked at the statute or when I heard about it years ago, as I thought to myself, oh, wow. So now we got an actual real collateral source set off here, so to speak, uh, against, you know, post-trial, of course, we're not going to let the jury hear about uh, the differences in the amount that the provider actually accepted because somebody didn't have insurance or something to that effect. And, you know, so the provider has $100,000 in medical bills and, that particular healthcare provider only required the patient to pay $10,000 worth of that medical bill and they paid that. So now I get a $90,000 benefit. No, I, that's what I originally pictured this as when the first, probably first time reading it, you know, and then, and then thinking about it, I was like, no, there's no way look at all this other language. Um, so I, I, I feel like that's what they attempted to do here post-trial based on my reading of the appellate opinion and, and, you know, once they got to the appellate level, uh, the justices had seen this before in a prior case. I believe they cited they cited in first Midwest Bank versus Rossi. They cited a prior opinion that they had. I think it's Miller is the name of that opinion. I see it here. Or maybe it's Perky. I can't remember which one it was. But Perky. anyway, one it was yeah one of the case. yeah one of the opinions they cited to was their basis again for saying no 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 no. You can't do that. This is related to subrogation interests and their right to recoupment. It's not related to a medical provider having a hundred thousand dollar bill and forgiving ninety percent of that bill, and suddenly you get a benefit from that. So that's that 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 was my understanding of how they came down and why they they switched it. And you're right; it's going to be an editor now because there was a reduction, and now it's going to be moved back up. So um, that's that's what how I read their opinion is essentially these defendants in this case were attempting to do what I foresaw this as when I first glanced it over. And, you know, the appellate court, you know, completely switched that and said, hey, listen, this is the way the statute reads. Not going to allow that. It's not an actual collateral source. Um, or I mean, it's not an actual collateral payments sort of statute. It's a post-trial statute related to subrogation interests and the, and the differences in those amounts. It's 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 meant similarly to prevent double recovery, but it's just it's 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 such an interesting statute because I believe it's written in such a way that it, it just makes it almost practically difficult, except for the right type of case to get what is, an actual what is benefit. the right type of case. I think it's a case with high medical specials. And again, you're going to have to have a line item because nowadays we're having plaintiffs in cases that have. Uh, maybe like severely disfiguring injuries or injuries that are more presentable out there to a jury that they can see and so, sort of digest and understand the magnitude of them. You know, we're seeing those cases nowadays, and you've seen this with some of the more prominent plaintiffs attorneys in Chicago. They're not putting, they're not blackboarding specials all the time anymore right. as far as medical bills. And the reason they're doing that is because psychologically they feel that those injuries are enough for a jury to say, okay. 
I see what you're saying here. I don't need a number blackboarded on the table to tell you this is significant. Right. So when they don't do that, uh, and you've got no line item on the on the verdict form for uh, medical bills, past or future, then you're going to be kind of shot on this issue. Uh, so that part wipes that case completely out, right? If they want it, they can take it away from you pretty easily if they want to. Right. Uh, in some 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 ways, the other the other issue is that um, when you have the right type of case, it's going to be one where you got large medical specials that are going to be required to be blackboarded to to support the plaintiff's case, and also you 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 have an, a plaintiff that has some obligation from a third party to pay a significant portion of those medical bills without high reductions, um, and you know those amounts are there, and that you have. The ability to enter into some sort of stipulation with the plaintiff pre-trial is my feeling because you can get a lot of the information through uh, subpoenas, written discovery, other information you may need before the trial begins, but you still may not know the amounts of recoupment. You still may, may not know the, amount, the amounts that are being forgiven by the health insurance provider or someone else as far as the amount they, they don't they're, they're, they're not going to go after for subrogation interest or recoupment. So I, I feel like you need that right case where you get the agreement, the stipulation ahead of time in exchange for something of value to the plaintiff. And that so that you can have those ducks in a row where you provide in that stipulation, the plaintiff is going to have to disclose to you uh, those agreements. And by one way or the other, it keeps the plaintiff honest then. Because if they don't actually get the health insurance carrier to reduce there's not a double recovery, but if they're getting them to reduce, they're going to have to disclose that to you post-trial so you can make your motion timely. Yeah, the question is, are they going to get it to you in time to meet the 30 days? Right. And that's why I built in that uh, extension or at least an agreement to, to uh, agree to a motion for an extension to the trial court. Now, again, that's risky. Okay. But so you really want your information pre-trial and then you just want to firm it up shortly post-trial and get the thing on file. But that I would work that into the stipulation as an additional attempted safeguard. I wouldn't sure. rely on it. Right. Um, but that that's that's what I would think the perfect case would be to try to get that this type of uh, post trial um, relief for remitter. But I, you know, when I first heard about the statute, and I and I remember that session with Judge Egan, she had mentioned, you know, she didn't understand why more defendants weren't using these statutes. And I think that it's just practically hard um, to do that with the requirements of the 30 days and the items that you have to collect and prove up as far as agreements, because you can get all the other things. It's going to be difficult to present to the trial court because it's our burden that that other item of the right of recoupment or the, if their subrogation has somehow been negotiated down or something to that effect. That's that's the difficult part with the timetables. Yeah, I got gotcha. Well, Brad, anything else to add before we uh, before we take our what our first break and come back with Evan? Well, I would just say that the statute, uh, you know, you should read it if you're a defense attorney. It is something that is, you know, it, it could be right for the appropriate case, but uh, you know, it's another just another piece in our bag of tools post trial that we would want to use in cases uh, that it, it could be applicable to. But it is also a statute that's not often used, so not many people know about it. So hopefully this gets the word out there. Uh, people can see this statute and take advantage of it in the future. Well, Brad, thank you very much for your insights and your time today. We really appreciate it. Uh, and
I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the Podium and Panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.